Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China's Xizong region has seen its economy grow fast over the past decade. Official data shows its GDP exceeded about 29 billion US dollars last year, more than doubling the figures in 2012. What insights can we glean about the tangible transformation of the region from this economic progress? Welcome to Road Today, the panel discussion with Mika Anna. We come to you from our studio in Beijing with a different perspective. China has released a white paper explaining how the Communist Party of China's guidelines for governing Xizan in the new era have brought progress and historical success to various undertakings in the region. Apart from economic development, the cultural sector in the region has been booming. The study and the use of the Tibetan language and script are guaranteed by law. Both standard Chinese and the Tibetan language can be found in public facilities as well as in radio and TV programs. Nearly 4,500 historical and cultural sites have been registered and protected by the local government. The White Paper also says Tibetan Buddhist activities have been conducted in an orderly manner and the environmental protections have made steady progress. So how does the actual situation in Xizang compare to the depiction in Western reports? What insights does the data in the White Paper provide about the true conditions in the region? To delve into this, joining us are Dr. Yao Shujie, Chong Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, and Dr. Liu Jiting, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China, and Mauro Kavlo, Founder and CEO of the M Communications Group, and also Senior Fellow at Center for China and Globalization. China's Xizang Autonomous Region is a unique place with a rich history and a unique cultural heritage. Gentlemen, let's start our conversation by exploring your engagements or your experiences with this majestic and enchanting region. Dr. Liu, what was your most memorable experience while visiting Xizang or engaging with the region? How did it shape your perspective on the region's development? Yes, in the past two decades, I've been personally in Xizhen and in Tibet. I visited Lhasa and other small cities and the small villages and uh, industrial facilities there because I was there uh, not for tourists but for doing business together with some European delegates from the banking and the financial institutions there. So we visited the local banks for instance, the Bank of China, RCBC, and the construction bank branch there. We talked with the many managers there, also with the local people, the Tibetan people that are working in the banks. And also we have exchanged some ideas, visited the local industry for export and import business. So in my uh, impression was deeply so influenced by my visit. Mm-hmm. So the first visit fish finished in Within six months, I went to Tibet and Xizhen again, so in order to get a deeper uh, impression, to know more about the knowledge in the local culture, local industrial structure. My impression is very deeply shocked because at that time, this uh, well-developed and well-connections in Tibetan area, not only in the rural areas, but also in the city, in also surrounding a lot of bigger 
cast all this. So in, in this in this way that uh, I have to say that um, my impression is that the people there very mm -hmm. well uh, open-minded, not as we always think that uh, the people that are far more from the Western country, from European countries, they are close-minded. No, they are really very uh, open-minded. Uh, secondly, they are very enthusiastic that to open up and uh, to talk with you all what they are willing to do, what they have already achieved in the past. And the third, also, they are very eager to learn more uh, technologies, especially to have more exchanges with uh, mainland in other provinces and also uh, outside of uh, China. So in this way that we found really very great opportunities and uh, potential for the debating there. So as we know that the infrastructure, airport, and the harbors are already built up, and the highway also connected with the other beautiful cities mm -hmm. like Linjir. So they're well connected already. So in this way, we found the economic and the industrial uh, structure have been already well built up. Of course, within the BRI initiative already further developed and deepened in the people's life. So we see the quality of life and the quality of the society has been really increased and improved. Dr. Liu, can you recall a specific moment or a story during your interactions with the local communities in Xizan that deeply inspired you or changed your outlook on its development? Yeah, that's true. I was deeply impressed by one facility there that is within a school, local schools and education and hospitals. At that time, as we know that the pattern the natural conditions are not so well as other provinces. So that's why we provided all the very advanced equipment. And also there we send many advanced doctors and the medical teams in Tibetan. Mm -hmm. So we hope we have joined the efforts and cooperated together with the local facilities. Even my European team already said that some cherished equipment and facilities there to support the poor people and then make bring the poor children to the schools in this way. So in different ways, and also we send the many um, uh, advanced equipment to produce or to generate electricity to support the villages and the, uh, factories there to run out of the crafts and also uh, local products. And we help each other also how to export their crafts and the products that are outside to to the western part of the uh, the Asia and our country, especially also to European countries. So in this way, I, I deeply impressed by the people's hard work in there. Mm -hmm. I remember one day, even during the 9 o'clock, as we know, the 9 o'clock in Tibet was already very cold, very dark at that time in the winter time. So I went to the facility. I still found that some people still working there, very, very uh, quiet and very hard. They don't care what the time I was really running. I, I asked them why you have to work so hard here. They told me that they are willing to have more uh, benefits from the development that they wish to that, to cope with the development of other provinces because their products will be delivered to support other areas like Shanghai, even in Beijing institutions. So in this way, they are 
uh, running out of the uh, clock to work hard from a very late time. So I think for such hard-working people there, there's no doubt, no reason to to be questioned that the Tibetan economic development will be further strengthened and also will catch up with the development speed of other areas in China. Mm-hmm. Develop the region through their own efforts and diligence. Um, Professor Yao, what stands out for you when mentioning Shizan and how has it influenced your perception of the development aspect in the region? I haven't had any direct experience living or working in Shizan, but I have worked in Bhutan, in uh, India, and also in Bangladesh. And also my students and relatives have worked in Shijang as well. Mm-hmm. So I um, have lots of direct and indirect information about how Shijang could be looked from the international uh, and national perspective. Internationally, uh, if you look at the neighboring countries like Bhutan, which is a very small kingdom on the border of Tibet, and also Bangladesh, which is um, uh, one of the largest developing economy, and a part of India, uh, adjacent to uh, Tibet also. Uh, if they look, if look at the infrastructure and economic conditions, as well as the living conditions uh, with the Tibetans, I think after so many years of uh, you know Chinese government support and regional government support, as well as uh, you know. Um, uh, personnel who have been sent team by team from different provinces and also different ministries to uh, Tibet. And you look at the large-scale infrastructure, such as the railways, the, the highway system, which have been built in Tibet, which is not comparable uh, you know, to the neighboring countries where uh, the infrastructure condition there is still very poor. But Tibet, uh, according to my you know, video sending from my students and relatives, it is a very impressive in terms of the highway system, the railway system, and also the beauty of the city and the town and the environment, especially the blue sky. So it looks like everybody in China is actually trying to uh, as a beautiful region, uh, as, a, as, as the most popular, one of the most popular tourist spots uh, by the most of the uh, middle class and upper class people in China. And this is due to the consistent effort made by the central and regional government to, to help the Tibetan people to make Tibet as a, a, a livable, uh, beautiful, and also harmonious uh, society. I think the the government have achieved much of the goal and the effort uh, is still continuing. So I feel uh, that under the communist leadership, the Tibetans have been uh, living a much better life and they will continue to improve their living condition and likelihood. This is a very in sharp contrast to the Western media, which they always try to king down a very black picture about Tibet. Mm-hmm. But uh, this massive controversy uh, between the Western media and the, the, the good reality of Tibet reflects the kinds of ideological uh, you know, bias and also political uh, you know, driven 
to talk about Tibet. But I, I believe most of the Chinese people, including the Tibetan people, they are fairly happy with what is going on and what is going to happen in the future. I think that's a very good point. A stable and prosperous Shizan is gradually becoming a core area for the development of neighboring regions. Uh, Mario, what about you? How your experiences have contributed to shaping your understanding of the development uh, dynamics in the region? You know, it's such an interesting story for me that goes back. Uh, it's totally unexpected, and it goes all the way back to 1999 which is the year that I arrived for the very first time in China, very first time I visited China. And um, the the Chinese gentleman who had invited me to China was from Chongqing. So this is why um, we were in the Sichuan area and, and we were set up in Chengdu and, and Chongqing doing some business back then. And so this being, again, 20, 24 years ago, and... I didn't know anything about China uh, or Tibet or, or anything at all. I hadn't previously thought about China, really. It was an unexpected invitation. And and here I am 24 years later with a, a Chinese wife and mother-in-law so and child. And so it really changed my life, to say the least, you know. And back then, I had first uh, secured some uh, living quarters on the campus of Huashi Dashui which is the uh, very famous Chinese medical university right in downtown Chengdu. And I got to know one of the professors there, Professor Li, is all I remember now, and his English name was George. And we, you know, we just would have casual walks and visits on the campus, and, and he would just very casually tell me about the things that he, he does there. And uh, one, one time, he was sharing, he said, oh, and I have a new project. We have a, a new project in Tibet. And he says, yes. He says, you know, we just allocate, we just confirmed that we allocated, like, it was like 15 million U.S. dollars worth, like 100 million RMB. He says, we just allocated uh, for a major project to bring online education into Shizong. Because we just are in there uh, doing all kinds of projects to improve the area. And that, that's all we're doing. And uh, keep in mind, this is 1999, right? I mean, mm. we, we all have our online life now is, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere 24-7. But back then, it was a brand new thing. So there, there they were laying the groundwork. Even back almost a quarter of a century ago, China's government had already begun doing things to make the lives of people in Tibet better. And what I see now is that China has accomplished unprecedented success domestically in raising up its middle-class population. And the, the success we, we know from the, for example, from the development zones that they created in Shenzhen and Suzhou and, and now they've replicated this urban model and they're taking what they've learned from these successful models and, and they're doing exactly, Tibet is another region, another province of China and they're applying it there the same way they would apply it in Anhui and and uh, uh, in, in Xinjiang and any other uh, 
province, where let's highlight the fact that these are were areas that were traditionally quite a low of a low economic status. Mm-hmm. So the need was there for the poverty alleviation and the need was there to build up these areas. And it's just a quite simple and admirable story that that's exactly what the Chinese government has done. They're uh, applying what they know. They are committing an enormous number of uh, funds to enormous number of projects to make the lives of people in that region better. That's And that's the government's job. That's what they do. Um, it's government for the people. And in this case, it's the people of Tibet. And it's a very positive thing. And we have to just realize that this is the plain and simple truth, not any of the ridiculous and di- divisive garbage uh, mm. that we hear that's Western propaganda. Mario, speaking of that, uh, as someone from the United States, we often see Western accusations against Shizan. Western society has long been biased against the region. What's the biggest prejudice you see through your understanding and contact with Shizan? Um, the biggest prejudice is it goes in the pot with the big prejudice about China, which is at this point, we can just, we can only call it a big lie that's been disproven, which is the idea that, you know, uh, in the West, it doesn't really matter what you're talking about when it comes to China. They turn it into something bad and into something black, no matter what it is. You know, China is, China bad, China evil, China communism, China no good. Oh, China invaded Tibet. Well, no, Tibetans, you know what, a hundred years ago or so, they would sing and dance to entertain their feudal lords who Mm -hmm. owned them, under which they had no rights and no life. Uh, But now they sing and dance for their own joy of their own life, you know, Mm -hmm. because China liberated them from that feudal system. That that's a very different story than oh China invaded Tibet. So again, in the West, the Western propaganda is no matter what China does, China could, you know, come come up with the final cure for cancer, and 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 the West would manage to write a headline in a negative way about China. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the reality of the situation. I could later in the show, I'm sure we'll get some opportunities, and I could give you you know endless examples of of this. And it's very unfortunate because, of course, China's just acting peacefully, acting in governance for its people. And that's all China's doing. China's not making war around the world. It's not dropping bombs on anybody. It's certainly not genociding anyone. That's just more political propaganda, including the Tibetans. They're just doing their job. You know, the government's job is to do its job. Your governance is governance. Be responsible. Govern the country for what's best for what the society and the people need, and that's what China is doing. Actually, you, I almost want to go so far as to say it's very boring, and very normal, and that's exactly what uh, governments in the West um, aren't. You know, the societies are not normal. They they've got terrible problems. The governments are terribly violent. Uh, and they're not normal, but China's is normal. And, and I, I, I'm very confident when I say that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Liu, what's your take? How do you look at the harsh criticism uh, Xizong has faced from the West? Yeah, I, I should say that I fully agree with the, the friend the professor already expressed because the, 
uh, as a foreigner, he could understand China so well. So this is a very uh, important uh, evidence that to show the real China. As, as we know, the Western media is only a lie maker, so a lie uh, professional. Their job is making lies, so we, we cannot change them. So since many years, they always criticize or even stigmatizing China, especially stigmatizing China's marrying China's policy toward the uh, ethnic in Tibet or in Xinjiang. But nobody they themselves came to China to see by their own eyes. This is the big problem. So they are only under their political pressure to tell lies to the Westerns. So this is uh, something that uh, we cannot change, but uh, we feel very, very upset, very disappointed about the so-called Western media, because that they, they don't, don't know how to get the truth. They don't know how to show their friendly and friend, friendship to uh, China. So China has done so many excellent jobs that... Uh, uh, compared to the Western government that for the people to improve the lives of their in, in Tibet. So Tibet in China, in many people that we take Tibet as a paradise because of its natural condition, but also its culture, its uh, 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 economic uh, connections with the other provinces, especially the kindness of the local people towards the people in in other provinces. So we, the paradise means that peaceful, very harmony, so it's very cooperative and with sympathy. So we, I believe that in the near future that the fighting people will welcome a new turning point to become a more prosperous area in the region. Because as we know, the GDP development, the speed, the, the space, is the number one compared mm. to other provinces because 9.8% of the GDP goes to, to this year. So we can see great opportunities and of course they have challenges, but in fact, their people's life and also uh, social conditions, especially social security have been well uh, improved. The one example I, we could see, we could discuss later because the Buddhists already receive pension. So this is a very remarkable achievement for the people there. So how can we tell the, um, the Western media how to see the facts? Actually, they should come to Tibet to see their, uh, by their own eyes and they will find the real facts because there's no uh, future, even no followers to believe them if they only fabricant lies against China, especially on the achievements in debating areas. Mm-hmm. Thanks, gentlemen. You're listening now. It's Broad Today. We've been talking about a newly released white paper explaining how the Communist Party of China's guidelines for governing Xizang in the new era have brought progress to various undertakings in the regions. So let's have a short break. We'll be back.
You're listening now to Road Today with me, Anna in Beijing. We've been discussing the actual situation in Xizhou compared to the depiction in Western reports with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chongkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, Dr. Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China, and Mario Kavlo, Founder and CEO of the M Communications Group and a Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Global. Globalization. Gentlemen, let's continue our discussion. We talked about Western accusations against Xizan, which is a common side contributing to a long-standing bias against the region in Western society. So in order to give the international community a full and factual picture, China has just released a new white paper on Xizan titled uh, CPC Policies on the Governance of Xizan in the New Era Approach and Achievement. Achievements. The white paper mentioned the government's strategy for uh, administering the region in the new era. Professor Yao, can you discuss how the implementation of the new development concept has influenced Xizang's economic and social landscape? The new policy, um, especially now the white paper has been just issued, it reflects two important uh, turning points. The first turning point is that uh, what China has achieved uh, in the past, they built up a cornerstone uh, for Tibet to, uh, to to move forward. And secondly, it would uh, underpin the future development plan of how Xizhan uh, could be done better. And this is a con- it reflects the continuous effort of the Chinese government how to improve uh, the, the Tibetan people how to uh, make them much more happy uh, than before, and how to build up a, a clean environment, a sustainable development pattern, uh, so that uh, you know, Xi'an in the future could become the most attractive tourist spot, and people would most likely to go there and enjoy their life just for the local people. And Xi'an is a, a very strategic. Um, you know, uh, locality uh, for the whole of the country. It has a vast uh, territorial area of uh, 120, uh, 1.2 million square uh, you know, kilometers, one of the, the second largest inside province of China after Xinjiang. So it has a very important uh, position bordering uh, the, the South Asian country. And they keep, uh, you know, the barrier for China's national defense, uh, also a NATO barrier uh, for uh, the, the security of the country. So the white paper, first of all, not only to make the people there living there much happier, but also to make the country much safer in terms of, you know, dealing with any external uncertainty and uh, antagonism uh, launched by any uh, anti-China forces, as our colleague just mentioned. The Western media have been at it try to bring uh, the opposite and usually negative picture about Xi'an uh, because they have an underlying agenda of unsecurized of, of China. Mm-hmm. This is where the Chinese government, the Chinese people are fully aware of this kind of uh, biased propaganda. And China have to do much better than work this today to make sure that uh, Xi'an is a safe place 
it's a happy place and it's a place that would be good for the whole country in the future. Mm-hmm. Professor Yao, you have a deep research and understanding of the poverty alleviation. We know infrastructure construction in the region has been comprehensively strengthened over the past decades, and absolute poverty has been historically resolved. Could you elaborate on the measures taken to improve people's livelihood and poverty alleviation in the region? Yeah, China, the Chinese government, first of all, it set up a fairly high standard, uh, like food, nutrition, uh, clothing. These are the two basic necessities that people shouldn't have to worry about. And there's also some sort of uh, adequate housing, uh, education, and health care, uh, low-cost care are provided. And recently, they including uh, the so-called uh, safe drinking water into the uh, you know, the so-called poverty alleviation package. So this is a, a standard relatively higher than the international poverty line uh, set out by IMF and the World Bank, the two international, uh, you, you know, economy and financial organizations. They set up a, an international poverty line for the whole world, but China set up is the one which is higher than the uh, the, the, the international line because it's actually materializing all the five different aspects, now six different aspects of people's livelihood. And secondly, uh, the Chinese government, as you mentioned, built up the infrastructure, they set up factories, and they also provide uh, you, you know, free education from age to age, uh, you know, year one to year nine, and also uh, subsidy for the low-income people to ensure that the future generation of the children would have a much better chance of uh, you know, escape, escape, you know, uh, avoiding poverty or uh, move up to a higher level of living standards. And certainly, it's the strategy. Uh, the strategy has been uh, designed and specifically focused on a different uh, layer of people. For example, uh, if people who are poor and they suffer from the uh, living environment, the productive environment, then the government would change the environment. If the people who live in a fairly absurd area, they have no chance of getting our property, then the people are relocated to a better place. And if the people who lost their uh, you know, labor, they become critical, become uh, you know, chronically ill, then the government pay the, 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 the people a minimum amount, which is much higher than the property line, to make sure they have a secure life, and so on and so forth. This is a very impressive, uh, you know, poverty alleviation uh, system. Right from the central government down to the village level, the poor people they are registered, they, they have an ID to be identified as poor, and they set up a target of how they keep the, 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 the poor people out of poverty uh, directly or indirectly support their uh, their life in every aspect. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a very a, you know, tremendous effort by the world's most populous countries, mm. which have 1.4 billion people. And to do so, it's a tremendous task. It, proves, it actually proves the efficacy of the central government policy and the determination of poverty eradication in China. They set up a very good example for many uh, developing countries in the world. 
Dr. Liu, what's your take? How do you characterize the new development concept and the improvement of people's livelihoods after years of this approach implemented in the region? You know, since I have been there twice, and I I have many friends there, so every year or every day, the important holidays, I got a message from my local friends telling、mm-hmm. me the improvements and uh, uh, their life. For instance, they uh, just uh, Dr. Yang already mentioned the people now try already have the clean water from the pipeline, pipe water. Already they are using. Uh, the electricity to have、uh, the, we call the electrical lamp instead of the oil lamp, and also they have already the highway and high speedway, and also not only to Lhasa but also to Lingzhi to other cities there. So、uh, communications connections have been well developed. I remember when I first time to be there, so I find it difficult to get the people in touch. Especially with the mobile phone, there at that time, all the mobile phone connections was not well established because the facilities and the, the transmission towers have been underway to be developed. So, but now this everything is changing totally. This modernization is now appearing in the Tibetan people's life. But no big difference compared to the people inland in the. Other cities, for instance, the communications, or even in some areas, special areas, 5G or 4G communications have been already in functions. And secondly, also very important, the, the medical care. As we know, the medical care,、uh, Xinjiang area is the number one in the in China that they covered all this. 98 percent have already for the medical、uh, security insured. And also from the education, we said 15 years already free education. This is also number one in, the, in China. So all this、uh, development that we can see that achieved in Tibetan people within sh- very short time. This is because of the CPC's policies and also joint efforts made by the Shizhong、uh, people and the people from other provinces and the cities. As we know, in the past.、Uh, Sixty years that our central government has every year to send special professional delegates and cadres and leaders that to be working in Xi'an in order to help the local government to make to improvement of administration in medical care, education, and communications, even in the high technology exchanges there. So in this way. We can see that uh, uh, Xi'an has already totally changed. It's、mm. become one very, very,、uh, how to say,、uh, important part of China in economic、uh, landscape. As we know that Xi'an、uh, also has very strong point in resilience, also in potential, and also in dynamic. All these three factors they have enjoyed and also will. Be further developed to support the、uh, economic development as an important part of our country. Dr. Liu, you mentioned clean water and well-connected transportation. Let's date back a little bit. What were the difficulties in poverty alleviation in Xi'an or, or in the regional development? I, I should say the poverty、uh, 
reduction of elevation, the, this job is very unique, is very remarkable because the natural conditions in Xizang is totally different, not compared with other areas. For instance, it's a highland because of the the, the atmosphere and the air. Uh, the densities they are quite difficult for many normal people to be living, to be working there because they need some days to get used to the uh, landscape and the land conditions. But uh, as we know that the natural conditions and also the natural resources are also short of this uh, in this area, for instance, from the electricity. Nowadays, we find that in Shizang, they have uh, solar energy, they have wind energy also there to support the electricity. But it takes uh, so long time to get all this uh, in good shape and in good condition. So when we're talking about the poverty reduction, the first priority is to make the people more skilled, mm-hmm. more uh, uh, more trained or more educated. This is a very uh, tough job and it's so time-consuming. So that's why that the central government and the local government have joined it together to make all these people that uh, to be within two years that all this extremist poverty has been already reduced and, and uh, eliminated. This is really a great achievement, and even in line with the UN standard compared to the UN Charter. So we see that this is a big uh, challenge already achieved in the in DPEC. So we see uh, this is job is really not so easy as we compared with Zhejiang or the Jiangsu, even in other provinces, because their natural conditions is much better than in Xizang. So that's why many people even, I said, lost their lives in order to get the poor people mm-hmm. there to get rid of their poverty because of this hard natural conditions and the working conditions. But nowadays, I think that all this has been already achieved. You know, about the 600, uh, uh, 600, uh, 6,200 people that have already got out of poverty. So, mm. uh, so 74 post uh, counties and the villages have been also lifted there, there uh, in the history that they are becoming more prosperity. So in this way, we can see this is really, uh, as, uh, I, I tell my friends there in Tibet, now you are coming for the second liberation since the last century, 1950s. Mm-hmm. This is true. Mm-hmm. I think Xizong's special geographical environment uh, makes its development even more valuable and surprising today. Gentlemen, let's talk about the cultural protection. The paper states solid progress made in ethnic and religious work. Mario, I know uh, you have deep cooperation with many cultural institutions in China, and you have a lot of unique understandings about China. This area is also an area that has been smeared and criticized by Western media and politicians. So how do you evaluate uh, the government's efforts to preserve Xizang's religious culture and language and traditional medicine, etc.? You know, it's so easy to uh, compare to how um, how the Chinese government has enacted 
these types of uh, uh, and and dealt with these types of very important issues um, in in the rest of the country. Uh, I can talk, for example, about the preservation of the freedom of religion in China in general, and then we can specifically. I'll, I'll then specifically mention some things that are happening in Xinjiang as well. I mean, we just take a general example, and someone like myself, who is, um, by my birth, I'm an Italian Catholic, and of course now I'm living here in China for, for 24 years, and other than because of a couple of years of pandemic lockdowns, um, in the whole 24 years that I'm here, I'm aware of the many cities all over China where um, I have and have been able to go to Catholic churches and fully experience practicing that faith here in China and have been able to do that every single year that I'm here. And when I go to these churches to do that, of course, being a foreigner, I'm, I'm in a church full of Chinese people. You, you know, the rest of the people who are here are people who have chosen to become Catholic Christians, and they're in the church practicing their faith. Mm -hmm. And so it's not even a big deal. And that's my point, is that it's just normal that if you happen to have a faith such as Christian, Catholic Christianity, um, or, Mus or you're Muslim, um, or Buddhist, and you, you would like to practice your faith, no one thinks anything of it, go ahead, go, go, go ahead and go to the nearest church or temple or mosque and go ahead and practice your faith. And it, it really is that simple across 99% of the country. There isn't anything controversial about it. And again, for me, that's 24 years that I've been here. Um, and, and by the way, living in, that's living in many different cities, right? Mm. So, the, the news that I'm trying to share with you is that there is no news. And this is what the Western media and governments and other institutions who want to brand China don't want you to understand. That there is no controversy about these things. That the freedom of religion exists. The, the interest of the Chinese people and the government to preserve whatever cultural heritages people have religious heritages people have, n nobody has a problem with it. It's fine. And, you know, uh, the the second example that I'll give is, and I mentioned it, was we'll move to, because it's a more popular topic, right, is Xinjiang. And just yesterday I spoke to a gentleman who is a photographer. He travels for his clients to different cities all over the country, and he photographs uh, hotels, like he helps hotels with their new openings. And he said to me, oh, he says, yeah, last year I went to Kashgar. And I said, wow, you know, I've never been to uh, Kashgar. Um, was it, how was it? I mean, was it very Muslim or just partly Muslim? Or, I mean, what was it like? I, I Do I want to go there on a holiday with my family? And he said, it's completely Muslim everywhere. This was what he said to me. So again, is there a problem with China 
committing cultural genocide. I mean, this is an insulting, preposterous, and disgraceful and despicable description of what China's doing by trying to say that China's, you know, ruining and oppressing and destroying uh, uh, Uyghur and Muslim culture in Xinjiang. When just talk to a friend of yours who just landed there on a plane and goes to the city and says, no, what are you talking about? There's Muslim and Uyghur culture and mosques all over the place. There's no oppression or erasure of these cultures. They're a, they're fully preserved there. Okay, so now having told you all of that, why would Tibet be any different? The, 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 the Chinese government went into Tibet decades ago to liberate the Tibetans who were living miserable lives without any freedom or rights under rich feudal overlords, and they were released from that. China um, then rid the area of the feudal caste system and replaced it with what it's been doing ever since, which goes back, like I said, even for me, my, my story of uh, Professor Lee, Professor Lee over at the Chengdu Hospital there to improve the lives of people in Tibet, making huge investments. And along the way, they are preserving the cultural heritage. And yes, I have several friends who've been to Tibet, and I ask them all the same question. You know, is the culture there? Is the language there? And well, it's obvious that it is. And so um, none of this surprises me. And, and that's I think that's my message for being on the show this evening is that, you know, I'm a foreigner here in China for 24 years. And as an American especially, um, it's embarrassing as an American. It's very hard for me because I don't want to sound like I'm anti-American. I'm, I'm criticizing these aspects of America that are very bad, these aspects of the American government that are, and the American media that are very bad. But that's not criticizing America. That's just these specific particular mm -hmm. aspects of, that are happening that to me as an American are, are disgraceful and embarrassing. Because here I am as an American in China, um, seeing with my own eyes and listening to my friends who see with their own eyes the truth about the situation, which is that China is being very positive and supportive, uh, very much protecting cultural heritage, very much protecting people's desire and rights to practice their religions. And I want to make one more point, which is to say, you know, even back in America, um, and, and this is a and this is a good point. This is good about China and America. This is to say, you know, uh, back in America, they, the government wants you to remember that, hey, don't forget, you're American. We're all American. You know, they say this all the time. We're all proud Americans. So whether you're black or white or Asian or, or uh, Latino or whether you're uh, uh, Jewish or Christian or Muslim, whatever you are, we're all Americans. So within our, the context of our own individual heritage and religions and ethnicity, if you live in America – be proud of that and respect that you live in America. Well, guess what? That's exactly what the Chinese government has. I was reading the white paper mm. before the show today, and it exactly says this to 
they are preserving Tibetan Buddhism and the cultural heritages. But again, within the context of the national unity of China, we are all, whoever we are here in China, be proud of the fact that you live here in China. There's so much to be proud of and respect the fact that you live here in China. And within those, within that framework, go ahead and enjoy your cultural heritage and go ahead and enjoy the freedom of expression of the, your religion as you wish. Actually, you remind me a point that the most popular temple among young people in Beijing is the Tibetan Buddhist Lama Temple, the Yunghu oh, yes. Temple. Yeah, it's always packed, and my foreign friends were surprised when they uh, visited Beijing uh, when we talk about the religious freedom in China. Um, Mario, right. let's focus on the improvement of democracy and the rule of law construction in the region. Can you provide some insights into the this progress made in the democratic governance and legal systems in Xizang. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that because honestly, I happen to be on exactly those pages in the white in the in the white paper right now. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it, and the the white paper um, highlights the 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 Chinese government's. Uh, approach and decision to create the unique advantages of what they call a socialist consultative democracy. And, um, you know, what that means is, is that, and I really appreciate it here in China, they didn't make the mistake of allowing the society to become too far focused on the extreme uh, individualism because if you have too much extreme individualism, then guess what? Uh, my individual freedom that I supposedly can do whatever the heck I want ends up impinging upon everybody else's freedom and therefore taking away people's freedom in the community around me. And that's what's not okay. So China, the Chinese governance uh, doesn't forget that to say democracy is for the people means exactly that. You are uh, people within a community, within a society. And so you as an individual are not allowed to disturb that society. If you do, you're disturbing the people. Um, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that, to make sure that the society uh, of people is stable, and safe and that they're uh, not having their lives interrupted by you who are you know who's being unreasonable um and so from my point of view again comparing this idea of you know a liberal democracy back in the united states where it's really just an elective democracy um you know you get to vote every couple of years um but other than that it's not really a democracy at all Whereas here in China, it's very much a socialist democracy. It's what I just described. A socialist democracy is a democracy that is a, a, its governance for the people. And that is what I've seen for 24 years in this country. Is it's just mm -hmm. everything they've done is to build up the society to make it better for as many people as possible in the society. And that means also, of course, that you have this the governance of China, uh, which is a socialist government. 
um, with Chinese characteristics. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for this edition of Road Today with me, Anna. Thanks to all of our guests for your enlightening perspectives. This is Road Today. Thank you so much for joining us.